Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Aaron K. Balabinian Ryan Levy George Clensos Lorian Wheeler With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode 18. Hello, this is Philippa Ballantyne from Weather Child, a historical fantasy podio book, the very first one set solely in New Zealand, and available at weatherchild.com. And you're listening to Antithesis, Book One, and this is the story so far. Senator Shelley has made his move. The former champion of lunar autonomy has introduced legislation to institute martial law in the colonies. Upon seeing the announcement, his one-time friend Doug Reeves, head of the clandestine revolutionary movement, immediately called an emergency session of the Lunar Board of Governors. Everything he's been working towards for the past three years depends on what they do next. The board has the power to turn him loose or to capitulate to the US and sentence the revolution to death before it even gets off the ground. Meanwhile on Mars, Jim and Ali have staked out their quarry and have prepared to take him down. Working for Reeves, they're about to take down another fugitive while struggling to maintain their professionalism in the face of a relationship that looks more and more like a gladiatorial match than a marriage. There was darkness at noon. The dust hurricane came in at 1100, rampaging outside and obscuring the already weak sunlight filtering through the dome. The shadows held sway on the boulevard. Rats enjoy the darkness, even here on the furthest human colony. They scurry about on their unimportant missions, hoping the darkness will conceal them from their predators. Cats also like darkness. It brings out the rats. Alyssa Hartman loitered at the linen merchant's booth, practicing the art of the predator, watching Waiting, savoring the anticipation, her quarry was unaware, but the hunt was always a seduction. It was the job. Her earphone buzzed to life. Section C5. Two minutes. Like an alpha wolf chasing its prey into an ambush, Jim was getting close. The streets weren't crowded this afternoon, so it was possible to get a visual fix. Only a block and a half away. Won't be long now. She looked away, beginning the countdown in her head, and pretended to bargain with the vendor for a handmade shawl, the kind of thing a miner would take with him to remind him of a lover back home. One minute. He was close enough now to size up. Lean, hungry, Cassius in miner's clothing. Big, dressed like a tradesman. Only his gait gave him away as a dandy trying to blend in. Allie quietly thanked God that Jim was in on this hunt. A long-sleeved, loose-fitting shirt could be hiding a small projectile gun to complement the eight-inch buoy strapped to his left thigh. His hand twitched unconsciously over it. 
paranoid? Used to being followed or just expecting to be caught? She brought the cloth up close to her face, apparently studying the quality of the weave, and whispered, Watch the left hand. Go in ten. Ten seconds. Nine. Eight. She started meandering across the thoroughfare. Have to time this just right. Distract him long enough for Jim to move in. Six. Five. Out of my way, damn it. She nimbly dodged two boys racing down the street. She quickened her pace to compensate. Two. One. Impact. Uh. Bouncing off him didn't hurt nearly as much as landing on her tailbone. She looked up at her target, who had stopped to help her amidst a flurry of skews When she grabbed his extended hand, Jim stepped up behind him, drew the knife from the bemused quarry's thigh, and held it to the small of his back. Might I suggest a slight detour, sir? The man's eyes widened and he caught his breath. He'd been made. As Allie got back to her feet, Jim tossed her a discreet smile, which she decided to forgive him for... someday. All three of them slipped into a nearby alley. Without arousing the suspicion of a single onlooker, the Hartman team had nabbed their prey in broad daylight. Allie didn't know whether to gloat or weep. The apprehension was the easiest part of the job. Finding him was easier than it should have been. For someone in such a dirty business, he wasn't very careful about picking his aliases. Not that she gave a damn about his name. They got him back to the room at the War God and sedated him. By rights, they should have used his suite. But she didn't want to try to deal with having any bodies on the deck she'd have to explain, which is surely what would happen if the man's Persian clients showed up. She might not hold any truck with the colonial government, but this vermin worked for Lockheed and was selling arms out the back door to the Persian fleet. The enemy of my enemy. She dropped a note to Reeves as soon as they arrived, while Jim was doping the dope. She couldn't risk having Jim talk directly to him. Not yet. Hopefully not ever. She sat down on the bed and tried to enjoy her triumph. The prisoner sat propped up and unconscious in the wingback chair next to the coffee table. Jim sat opposite him on the ottoman, chewing thoughtfully on a strip of goat jerky. The sound of his chewing was the only sound in the room. The biometrics on the prisoner matched. There was no question who he was. In an hour or two, some Lunar Customs agents would tap on the door, and the man would be out of their hair. And then... What? There wasn't anything to go back to. The job was done, bar the waiting. Allie tapped her hands on her legs to cover the sound of Jim chewing. She'd needed him for the job, but now it was done. She needed to get away. Somewhere she wouldn't see death every time she looked at him. Somewhere she didn't have to see him at all. But where was there to go? The slork-smack-slorp of his chewing was like fiberglass powder under her skin. She could have gone on with the deadness. It was, after all, her due. She could have waited in companionable silence with him, suffering through the longing that they were both feeling, the cold, gradual delirium of familiarity left too long on the shelf. But he had to go and fuck it up. Get religion on being engaged and attentive. She pushed the chewing sound out of her head again. He'd made it crystal clear that he was not interested in her opinion on any damn thing until she got off her high horse and joined him back on the ground. He pulled another stick of jerky out of his pack. 
She tried to ignore it, but the thought of another seven minutes of sitting in a quiet room with a drugged body and only the squishing, slurping sound of a man gnawing endlessly on dried animal flesh... Christ, Jim, not another one. He looked at her. Rage. She hoped it was rage. Smoldering behind his eyes. It's not my fault the only thing we have to do is sit around getting leg cramps. You have a better idea? Something... He paused briefly for emphasis. You'd rather we do? I'm open. She held his gaze with disgust. He would suggest that. You simpering sick! She growled out her frustration and went to the terminal, opening the message. It was Reeves. It's an email confirming receipt of our report. The official should be here in 20 minutes. She summarized automatically as she read. He thanks us for our service, blah, blah, blah. He's transferred the value to our account. He says he'll pay us for 100000 if we meet. If we meet what? Never mind, it's not important. Jim was on his feet and striding towards the terminal. What does it say, Allie? Nothing. It's another job, that's all. 400000 isn't that's all. He pushed past her and read the rest of the message. Allie shook her head and looked at the ground, wishing she were anywhere else. He'd take it. She knew he'd take it, and then they'd have enough to go their separate ways, and she'd be alone, and it would be her fault again. 400,000 if we take the next ship. He trailed off and then looked at her. She couldn't meet his gaze. He'd see too much. He'd know everything. We can't. A job that size could last a year, maybe two. He was right. It would be a big job. It would last. We won't. She lifted her eyes to meet his, knowing that whatever she found there, she wouldn't like. No, probably not. Grim, determined, cold. But it's a job. I am not dying on Mars. He turned around and with his left hand typed into the reply box and hit send. The message lingered on the screen for a moment before fading out. Two words... We accept. Night had come to Luna City. It was not the oldest settlement on Luna, and truth be told, it was founded more out of sentiment than for any other reason. There was no native water. It had to be piped in from the ice mines at the poles or synthesized from free oxygen and hydrogen pulled out of the rocks. The tourist traffic to see the first footprints had been profitable enough to make it worthwhile, starting as a few cargo carriers on the surface and then growing down into the rocks. It was a remarkable achievement. And now, after 130 years of unbroken human habitation of Earth's only moon, it was ending. The board had spoken. There was nothing he could do. The years of planning, the dreams of unchaining humanity from its cradle were evaporating like the alcohol on his fingertips. Doug gazed out his bedroom window disconsolately over the dark, black lunar surface, dotted here and there by spectacular engineering works. Domes, tubes, poured and polished pavement, dust fountains from mining operations... Everything that should have been the promise of humanity's future now looked to him like so much life support equipment for a dying ambition. 
The proper reaction to Shelley's withdrawal of support from lunar independence was defiance, or if they must seek conciliation, a rooting out of the radical terrorist elements in the resistance network. He had stood in the midst of the boardroom and made exactly that argument, giving the finest oratory of his life. No one would heed him. Frightened men never listen until their terror drives them past the point of redemption. It was a song as old as Amoeba's, and Doug had heard its tinny drone played over again every day in court since he'd first been a law clerk. The hell of it was, Shelley was right that a hostile power on Luna would need to go to very little trouble to bomb Earth, or any part of it, back into the Stone Age. Nonsensically, by withdrawing his support, he risked turning the colonial government into just that sort of hostile power. Shelley was never short-sighted, not until now. Something horrific was in the making, and the reaction of the terrified men and women on the board was exactly wrong. Damn them. Luna and all the colonies depended on the Lunar Oxygen Corporation, a refining and cracking monopoly at the South Pole that distilled oxygen out of the lunar dirt. Locke's core was majority owned by Earthbound interests, and officially breaking from the U.S. risked the very air that everyone breathed. So they backed down, and that meant that the dream died here. If Shelley really meant to pursue the policy he outlined, it would end with the militarization of the lunar colonies. The Terran powers would maintain a stranglehold on their properties, perhaps for another hundred years. They backed down. They were going to invite a replacement government. Invite them! A military presence on a planet that was devoid of large-scale weapons by dictate of international law. The only munitions on Luna were mining explosives, sidearms, and the missiles that clever freighter captains managed to conceal from the docking authorities. They couldn't stand up to bombardment by U.S. or Persian forces if they tried, and the board had resolved to invite an occupation. Doug slammed his hand against the window, but the lights in the crater below him carried right on shining as if nothing had happened. And, as far as they were concerned, nothing would. He wasn't going to let it happen. A reply would come soon, if Alyssa Hartman was the kind of woman he remembered. It was going to be a dark road. Some bodies were meant to remain buried, and he didn't like delving this deeply into the distasteful business of necromancy. The door opened behind him, but he didn't turn to face it. He heard Jade's light footfalls moving barefoot on the carpet. He saw her ghost in the glass moving from the door to the closet where she changed out of her work clothes and into a silk wrap and pajama pants. The cloth fluttered and danced around her, but he saw in it only the hastening of a funeral shroud. It wouldn't descend. He wouldn't allow it. The board was set. The pawns were in place. And it was time to open the game. He looked again at Jade in the window as she finished tying her top closed and put her used work clothes in the wash slot. What would happen to her if the board was allowed to stick to its plan of obsequiousness? It wouldn't die yet. Not while there was still something he could do. And he'd have to do it on his own. He hadn't even played at being a field agent since his days at playing spycraft in high school. Where would he even begin? 
The only leads were in the information the Hartmans sent back from the prisoner, in the computer core from Scott Walter's apartment, and in the files Shelley had sent him the day of Marion's attack. If he knew he was going to reverse his policy, why did he give them to me? No, he couldn't trust those files until he knew what Bill was playing at. A freighter descended low over the spaceport. An old one. Its engines roared silently in the vacuum, the nuclear fire projecting more force to make a soft landing than most people back home would see in a lifetime. The flame had to be kept alive, and this was the only way. Jade padded softly across the floor behind him, taking care not to disturb him. Jade? He didn't turn around, and he kept his voice even. She turned to look at his back. He could see the concern in her posture. Yes? He dared not face her. He didn't want her to see the defeat in his eyes. When I was eight years old, there was a cottonwood tree in the backyard. Every day when it was warm enough, I climbed it, first thing in the morning. Jade sat down on the bed behind him. He ignored the way she patted the mattress beside her, inviting him to join. He didn't want her to see him. Not until he was done. One morning I found a leaf bud in the spring. There were buds everywhere, but it looked different than the others. Crinkling curved like a dried-out string bean. I'd never seen anything like it before. I picked it. I took it inside to ask my first mother. He blinked away the blurriness that rose in his eyes. She wasn't home. None of my other parents knew where she'd gone. But my third father, a gentle, graceful man, he was a high school teacher and he explained to me what it was. I thought the U.S. didn't allow plural marriages. From anyone else, it would have been an interruption, but her tone was soft and full of hope like a beeswax candle. She was pushing into his world through the crack he held open for her, taking the invitation he was too defeated to offer properly. They don't, but my third mother was a lawyer and put together a corporation that had most of the same legal standing. That must have been wonderful. Why didn't you mention it before? Her warmth gave him permission to plunge forward. There's a lot I kept from you. Because I thought it might hurt you. I, you didn't have a family growing up. We both have our secrets. She laid back on the bed and closed her eyes. Tell me the rest of the story. I'm going to pretend I'm a little boy laying under the open stars at night in a place where there are no domes. Tell me what it's like. <sighs> My third father told me it was a chrysalis. The shell that a caterpillar makes for itself, where it turns into a butterfly. He helped me build an enclosure and hang it from the lid, just like it was hanging from the branch where I found it. Every night I went to sleep watching it there, waiting for it to start wiggling and emerge for a week. It was hard to go to sleep. My second mother brought me some photo files on different species, and I learned the name of mine by the shape of its chrysalis. In those days, I learned more about butterflies than any ten boys ever knew. He stopped, took a breath, let his focus drift out to the unsuspecting world below him, and continued. On the seventh day, the word came. My first mother had been swimming in Savannah. It was night, she'd been drinking. They didn't find her till the morning. He kept his voice soft and clear. He didn't let the tears creep into it. And after that, I didn't care about butterflies. I slept on my back, looking away from the enclosure. Just wanted my first mother back. My sisters and parents helped, but I didn't understand yet what it meant when someone died. 
I didn't know why she would leave and not say goodbye. I didn't know how to ask the questions I needed answers to. On the tenth day, the chrysalis started to move. When I woke up in the morning, it was shaking. Just a jolt every now and then, but I stayed indoors to watch it. It took hours. The poor thing barely had the strength to break it open. And when it finally came out, its wings were folded. It didn't look right. I wanted to help it. I couldn't bear to see something so small be abandoned and lost. It looked like I felt, and I couldn't bear it. I opened the cage and very, very carefully pulled its wings open with my fingers. It looked magnificent. Bright, shiny blue wings. That was very sweet. She sighed contentedly and absently stroked the bed where he was sure she wished he would come and lay next to her. No, it wasn't. The oils in human skin are acid. They ate through the mucus on the butterfly's wings, damaged the veins, kept them from unfolding right. It never flew. It died a couple days later. I swore I wouldn't ever do something out of misplaced self-pity again. Now he could turn around and face her. The board voted today. They're going to cave into whatever demands the Senate makes. They're going to accept any help the U.S. offers. They think it'll protect us from the Persians. They think it'll keep Loxcore from shutting off our air supply. He finally let emotion into his voice. The contempt, draining like congestion from his mind, streamed from his vocal cords. Jade started and sat bolt upright. When? We deliberated for two weeks. They took the vote while I was in court this morning. I just got the vote notice at lunch. He had arrived at the bed and stood next to her. She slid her hand around his leg and squeezed. We'll be okay. We'll think of something. I already have. I'm going to have to go traveling for a while. There are some things I have to take care of. Part of my life you don't know about yet. I'll tell you about it when I'm done. He knew she wouldn't press. She had secrets, too. And she wasn't ready to open them up just yet. You'll take care of yourself? She looked up at him, already afraid for him. He hadn't wanted her to fret. He put on his calmest mask and smiled gently at her. I will. Has that friend of yours, Cassie, is it, lifted yet? He had to wake up his network, and he had to roust out the radical element, if there was one. And as much as he hated to trust it, there was only one lead he knew of. One breadcrumb in a forest of fog. No, she's trying to sell billets for her next trip. Call her. Tell her I'll buy the whole run. He started mentally running through the checklist of things to do before they boosted. Where are you going? Nineveh. You've been listening to episode 18 of Antithesis, book 1, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Aaron Balabanian as Allie, Brian Levy as Jim, George Clensauce as Douglas Reeves, and Lorian Wheeler as Jade. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. 
The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Philippa Ballantyne has taken you to worlds of flesh and horror, walked you through Renaissance England and the realm of the Fae. But now she takes you somewhere no patio book has ever been. New Zealand. Step into the alternate history of Aotearoa, where magic and madness go hand in hand, where ancient power threatens to tear the world apart where a reluctant sorceress is our last hope. Visit weatherchild.com or subscribe to iTunes. That ends part three of Predestination and Other Games of Chance. There's one more part to go. Doug and Cassie and Jim and Allie are all on their way to Nineveh. All eyes have turned to Phalanx and its proprietor, Joss Kyle. What will happen when they squeeze him? Our promo this week is from Philippa Ballantyne, our very own Brittany Hydra, who has started podcasting her new dark fantasy novel at www.weatherchild.com. She's two episodes in, and even for someone who likes her work, I'm impressed. She continues to grow and stretch as a writer. It seems to be a paranormal family saga that deals with intergenerational hauntings during some of the darkest years of the 20th century in New Zealand. I don't know where it's going yet, since she hasn't let me read it, but it's moving at a very nice clip. And speaking of the Dark Goddess, have you heard of Erotica a la carte? She's been running this experiment for the last few months where she puts up a menu of story elements and lets the audience vote on them, and then creates a story out of the elements that the audience picked. And the stories always have both significant literary depth and explicit pervasive sex. Her second story in the series, Measureless to Man, is now among my favorite short fiction stories ever. Well, believe it or not, she's invited me to write next month's story. The poll is up now. Head on over to www.eroticaalacarte.com and vote. This time you guys get to tell me what to write. Oh boy, I might be in trouble on this one. Let's see what else is going on here. I took about 10 days off and went up to Portland a couple of weeks ago for a photography gig and to work on the next novel, Down From 10. I'm up to 80,000 words on it now and it's coming along pretty well. I'm on track for being able to record it in late May and start podcasting in June. I am looking for voice actors, and I will be putting up a casting page in March. But those of you who listen to this show get first shot. Here's what I'm looking for. Actors and actresses, or podcasters, who have a broad emotional range, who have access to good recording gear, and who are comfortable doing voice acting in sex scenes, since every adult character in this book except one has at least one sex scene. 
The characters range in age from their mid-twenties to their sixties. I also need one little girl's voice about eight years old, one teenage girl's voice about sixteen, and one older British woman's voice to cover the ghosts haunting the house in the story and... Hmm, I just gave away something there, didn't I? Well, we'll see. You may have noticed that I failed in my attempt to get you three story episodes in one week, but fear not. Kitty Nikian, Chris Lester, and myself have recorded one of two special episodes I'm trying to get out to you this Sunday, the other being the final part of the Sex Roundtable with Philippa Ballantyne. I've already recorded episode 19, so that will release on time next Thursday. Thanks for all the feedback and for the new iTunes reviews that have shown up. We've actually started hitting the top 100 on iTunes in New Zealand. Those of you in the U.S. and U.K. and Korea, please drop by iTunes and leave reviews and copy those reviews to Podcast Alley or Podcast Pickle. Um, also, those of you in Canada, too, if you're still listening to me after the uh, Canadian controversy on the Dealing In shows. Remember always, you can email me questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats at dan at jdsawyer.net, and you can leave comments on the blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. You can call and leave voicemail, and please do, at area code 206-350-5739. If you're not in North America, remember to use the U.S. country code 01 to get our lovely outdated phone network. And remember to spread the word. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends, post a link, give away MP3s, and pelt your enemies with CD copies of the first few episodes to get people hooked. Also, drop by our Zazzle store and get a My Name is Joss Kyle t-shirt or another Antithesis t-shirt of your liking. If you'd like other kinds of swag, please drop me an email and let me know what you want mouse pads, coffee mugs, that kind of stuff. I This is my first endeavor at uh, merchandising a show, and I'm still looking for good ideas. But uh, whatever you do, help spread the word. Remember, I don't get paid for this. Your feedback and yearning for more of the story is all I get out of it. So keep it coming. Make it worth my while. Now, speaking of Chris Lester and Seth Harwood and Scott Sigler, we are all hosting another pub crawl. This one is at 5 p.m. on February 21st, that's tomorrow, at the House of Shields in San Francisco. It's accessible from the Powell Street BART station, and you can find directions at www.houseofshields.com. There's a link to the eventful listing on the blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. Keep an eye on your feed this Sunday for special features, and check next Thursday for the next episode. And until then, I leave you with the nagging questions. How far is Doug willing to go now that he's on his own? What will happen when he finds out that Jade has sold him out to Cassie? How will Cassie handle being stuck on a spaceship with Doug for two weeks? And perhaps most importantly, will Joss still be waiting at Nineveh when everyone arrives? Find out next Thursday, and until then, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.